Hey everyone, welcome to Vibrant Visionaries with Heidi Bennett. That is me. And my guest today is Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. She's a film critic, an author, an academic. She specializes in gender, genre, representations of sexual violence, cult and horror film, and women's filmmaking. She called in from Melbourne, Australia, and she and I had met at Fantastic Fest in 2018 in Austin, Texas. Since then, we'd stayed connected. I just fell in love with her when I met her, and you will understand why when you hear this incredible conversation. We talk about her new book called A Thousand Women in Horror, and it's already topping the charts. As soon as it came out, it hit the number one spot on Amazon's list of top new releases of performing arts reference books, and the hardcover and softcover were number one and number two on the horror movie book new releases. Not only that, but she got a bona fide celebrity endorsement when Vincent D'Onofrio said, this is very cool. And it's so much more than that. This book is so freaking amazing. And it's just one of many books that Alexandra has authored. So check out the show notes so that you can see links to her personal website and links to go check out this amazing book and other projects. Let's get on with the podcast. Hey everyone, I'm so excited to bring in my guest all the way from the other side of the globe, Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Welcome, Alex. Hi there, Heidi. Thank you for having me. So exciting to have you <laughs> on. We've been Twitter buddies since we met briefly at Fantastic Fest in 2018, and I've been um, you know, just following along on your adventures, and we discussed having you on the podcast, and you said, I've got this book coming out, and I'd love to come talk about it when it's ready. And A Thousand Women in Horror is ready and coming out, or is it already out? Tell it's me about it. It is yeah, out right now officially. Out, oh, great. Because I'm at the bottom of the planet, we have kangaroos deliver the mail down here, and that's what those little pouches are for, right? <laughs> um, so I've got friends in the UK and some in the US who have already had their copies arrive. So people are sending me photos of the book, but I still don't have a copy of the book. Oh <laughs> so my I know God. that it's out there and I know that people have it, but I haven't, I, I often use, um, you know, it's quite gendered, but I, I stand by my right to, to do it. But I often use a kind of mothering metaphor, but I've, I've yet to see my baby. I've seen the ultrasound, <laughs> I've seen the baby photos, but I've yet to actually cradle it in my hands. But it's oh, out wow. and it's, it's on Amazon. You can get it through Bookshop, Book Depository uh, and the publisher, Bear Manor. So yeah, it's, it's apparently out there. The kangaroos have got to speed up, but I believe that it's out there. Well, congratulations Thank for your you. baby. And I can't wait till you hold her in your arms. <laughs> it's, a, it's a girl. <laughs> Gosh, do you know how many, officially, how many pages it is then? It looks like it's probably a beast. Yeah, I think it's sitting on about 600. I think from memory, it's around 200,000 words. Wow. Which is, I, I did a PhD and it's, it's well over double a PhD and a lot harder in a lot of ways. So yeah, it was a pretty big task. It was a pretty epic journey is an understatement. I bet. So that's something I definitely want to talk about. I have I have clients that are writers, we have listeners that are writers, and that seems to be something that just almost any vibrant visionary, multi-creative person. So the the people that I have on on as guests here for those that are new listeners I like to have guests on who have many different creative passions and really explore them in many different ways. And yours circle around writing a lot, but I know you do other things too. And, and so as far as the writing and this book in particular, how did the first seed get planted or how did this first start to grow in your mind as something you needed to put into print? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I, um, I mean, this is my seventh book. I've got an eighth coming out at the end of the year. So in many ways, it was, you know, writing books was something that I was used to, but also at the same time, this book's very, very different from anything else that I've done. As you've mentioned, you know, I do sort of other things as well. And I've long had an interest in women's filmmaking more generally. And a few years ago, I won a research fellowship with the Australian Film Institute to research 
uh, Australian women's filmmaking and film criticism from 1980 to uh, in the 80s and 90s. And this was like a boom period of Australian women's filmmaking. And so I had a broader interest in women's filmmaking and that project was fantastic. I, I just got so much out of it. And I did make, built a whole online database about the films made by Australian women during those two decades. And that got a really positive response. And I, I co-curated a program at the Melbourne International Film Festival, showcasing some of the more obscure films from that period made by women with the then artistic director of the festival, Michelle Carey. And it was just wonderful. And and I'd also co-edited a, a book on Elaine May, the comic, mm-hmm. May and Nichols, a big comedy duo. And then she she made four films across her career. And the, the last, of course, was Ishtar, which was sort of a famous quote unquote bad film, but as anybody in their right mind will tell you, is actually a masterpiece. So I've long had this interest in women's filmmaking. So I have that sort of on one channel. And then on another, it's my horror stuff. So it's horror, cult, exploitation film. So that's that's always going to be very central to me and what I'm interested in is gender and horror. I've done two books on rape revenge film. I did a book on Suspiria. I did a book on Abel Ferrara's Miss 45. So I, in a way, this 1000 Women in Horror project really brought those two strands together. They, they really intersected. So this broader interest in women's filmmaking and my, my other interest in gender and horror and exploitation film, this book is where they met. And it just felt right and it felt like the right time and my friend and colleague, Lee Gambon, who had written a few books with Bear Manor, we were just shooting the breeze. And he said, you need to do this. We, we really need to get this happening. So he was the, he was the midwife. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we often talk on this podcast about, you know, finding your mentors or your peers or the people that you ask for help, the ones that maybe have a, a different skill set and that also get who you are and what it is you're about and help you drive your creative um, forces forward. And that sounds like you is that one of those people for you. Absolutely. And look, I've been really lucky on that front. I know that not everybody has those kinds of mentors. I come from an academic background. My day job is in universities. I'm a research academic and I'm very fortunate that I've I've had numerous, really, you know, really numerous mentors that have just influence what I do and how I work and just my sense of self so strongly. So within academia, there's an art historian and art theorist called Professor Anne Marsh, who's been an enormous influence on me. And I I never studied art history formally, but I worked with her for many, many years and it felt like boot camp. It was like art history boot camp. Uh, And she's a feminist art theorist, feminist art historian, and it was just life-changing for me. And I'm a member of the Alliance of Women Film Journalists, which the president uh, is a woman called Jennifer Marin, who is a gift. She just, she's a real mentor. And I think film criticism, especially when, it, when you're doing sort of more short-form criticism, it's hard, I think, to find any kind of, an official mentor is almost impossible. But even an informal one is very difficult to sort of lock down because it's so slippery. So I feel hugely, hugely lucky that I've been gifted by these extraordinary women at different points in my life. The influences, I can't describe it. You know, the value is just too big. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like when I think about the value of mentors, it's that a lot of times I feel like they certain, you know, each person it may be a different relationship, of course, but that some of the common things I get out of it is I feel I come away feeling more aware of what my gifts are because they've reflected them somehow or sort of shined a light on them. And then I also feel like more confident because I see, you know, someone else has been blazing a trail or showing like we can show up in the world as who we are and with our point of view and it's valid and not only valid, but important. And yeah, they just sort of give ideas or uh, broaden the world for us about what's possible. Absolutely. And I think it's also, it's perhaps a bit of a dramatic word, but I think it's, um, for me personally, it's a question of witnessing. So if, if there's somebody whose work you would admire, if you can witness that process up close, it's an extraordinary experience because you can see the the peaks and the troughs. And when you see the finished product, if it's a book or whatever the outcome is. You don't see the journey. You only see the end result. So when you're working with somebody in, in close proximity and they're producing work that is really meaningful to you and that, that holds real value, just witnessing 
their process and their, yeah, the journey is probably a good word. It's hugely beneficial because when you're doing your own work and you have those little troughs, it's not the end of the world. It's, it's you realize and you understand from experience that that's actually part of the process. So true. So true. So you get the inside scoop or, you know, they've let you witness <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Maybe yep. all the ups and downs and the, the peaks and valleys, every, yes, the trough, uh, the, all the ways that you say it, the non-linear path that's so difficult to describe. But when you're in it, like you said, it's so hard to really see the forest for the trees. So I'm currently watching the documentary series, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, that is based off of uh, Michelle McNamara's book. And it's an incredibly well put together, loving documentary that much like the book, you know, it really um, tells the stories of the victims, but also Michelle's story. And they share throughout this documentary, I guess you call it reenactments, but it's very beautifully reenacted, very lovingly reenacted. And you see texts between Michelle and Patton and um, him encouraging her throughout her writing of her book. So he's written a book before it's published. He's out on book tour. He comes back. I'm obviously short, shortening it, this little part of the story. But then as she's going through the process of finishing her book, whilst also trying to simultaneously solve the cold cases here of this mystery murderer and rapist. You know, she's doing all these things that are so, you know, emotionally exhausting and keeping her so raw. And uh, he's dropping these little nuggets of encouragement. It, it's really beautiful to to witness. Like just watching that part of the film was making me tear up, just the the relationship between the two of them. It sounds beautiful. It is. It's lovely. <laughs> I think, look, I think any kind of support network is really important. It, it's just, and I think that's maybe why writers, or certainly in my experience, film writers tend to flock together a little bit because there's so much unsaid. You know, like I, I've got a network, of you know, an, an, an informal network, but we don't have conversations about how hard it is to write because we all know how hard it is to write. <laughs> right. But even just having that being an automatic knowledge is quite comforting. The fact that you don't need to sit down and explain to somebody, this is agony. Like this is, it's, it's the only thing that makes me feel alive, but it's also extremely difficult <laughs> and not, and just having a network, that's your starting point. Do you know what I mean? Where, where that's already assumed the support that you give yourself is beyond that because that's a given, you know, with the internet being what it is. Like I'm, I'm really blessed with a, uh, a network of you know, friends that are that are cult film writers and critics and, and programmers. And there's something really nice about it that's, yeah, I think that it, it's your sanity a little bit or the water cooler, especially when you write where you're so, I mean, I'm isolated to some degree being in Australia, although, as I said, you know, there are certainly colleagues and friends here. But, you know, I'm in my little office and that's where I work. That's where I do all my work by myself. And it's like a little shoebox and I do my thing. And it's very insular work on one hand, but it's also very public work on the other. So there's this strange tension between private and public with writing, and um, I'm certainly not the pers first person who, who writes who's, who's noticed that, but it demands those two faces demand very different things of you, and you function in a very different way. Uh, and so having a support network is just vital, absolutely fundamental, because it's quite a dramatic shift going from one of those, not necessarily persona, but going from one of those headsets to another. Yeah, I have a friend who started, she's always written, but as, as a, an adult with a full-time job, decided to start putting herself out there and going to um, conventions and, and workshops and uh, signing up for writers like retreats and um, online, what do you call them, like cohorts or, you know, where you're critiquing each other and such. And it really just broke open this whole world for her. And I would say, I don't know if she says she's an introvert, but I would say she might identify as an introvert. And the way that she spoke and has spoken with me since she's made herself vulnerable to critique and met some of her writing mentors and people who she's looked up to and then meeting other writers, she's like, I found my people, you know, that feeling of just something amazing where you, yeah, have these other folks where you can be vulnerable and feel excited that you, you know, share some commonalities as far as what your interests are and what you want to write about. And that's, that's how I felt. I'm not a writer. I mean, I write, but it's not what I do for a living. But when I went to Fantastic Fest, it was 
to be, you know, there as press for Vibrant Visionaries for this podcast. And I sort of sold myself partially as also like, hey, I'm a coach for creative professionals. So I'm not going to be like your typical, maybe, or ask the same kind of questions as an entertainment journalist might ask. And, you know, I'm not sure exactly why I got in, but I was so excited to get in. (laughs) And I really got a lot of great feedback from folks that I interviewed and um, some of their, uh, what do you call it? What the heck do you call it? Their represent their reps. Yep. <laughs> I couldn't think of the word. But showing up to uh, that festival for the first time, I'd heard about it through other people talking about it, people who I admire that are filmmakers or other podcasters and comedians and, you know, just people in the entertainment, entertainment industry. It was thrilling for me to be there. And I was kind of on a, just a big high every every single day, meeting people, seeing all these amazing films, hearing the soundtracks, going to your presentation and just everything. I just felt like I was in and I went by myself. I'd never been to Austin before. It was really exciting and exhilarating. How did you get connected with Fantastic Fest? I think when we met, it was my first year there too. So I, I, I was there by myself and it was, it was a similar thing. It was like, oh my gosh, I found my people. Who knew they'd be in Austin, Texas, right? You know, in in Melbourne, Australia, the idea of Austin, Texas is, it's like Narnia. Uh, it's like, what? You know, I, I never in my life did I think that this is where I would find my people. But I I wrote a book, as I mentioned, on Abel Ferrara's Miss 45, which Draft House did a re-release of, I believe, in 2013. And I touched base with them to get permission to reproduce the beautiful poster art that went with that. And that began my relationship with a few people there. I just sort of touched base and we got along well. And I uh, was invited a few times to consult for the programming team there on films that were in my area of expertise. So the first one was um, Coralie Fage's rape revenge film, Revenge. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a rape revenge film. These are not these are not easy films, right? They're pretty controversial and they're, they're difficult films to program. You know, you, you sort of take your life in your hands, I think, when you decide to program a rape revenge film for any festival. But I really went into bat for that one because I, I believe very, very strongly that this is an area that we need a lot more women filmmakers in. And there's a long history of it that, that we don't really talk about. So that was certainly not the first rape revenge film directed by a woman, but particularly with everything that sort of happened, you know, in the in, gender and film that falls under the the Me Too umbrella. You know, I, I just think that these are voices that we really need to hear, even if it's uncomfortable and even if we don't agree with the representations that, that we mm-hmm. need more women making these films. So that really began a quite lovely consultancy relationship with the programming team. So if they'd get a sort of unusual or tricky film on, on the gender politics front, you know, we'd sort of have a chat about it. And yeah, it just sort of developed from there. I was invited to be a judge. Uh, I was the president of the horror jury in 2018, which was amazing. <laughs> and I met a whole bunch of people, yourself included, but colleagues and you know people whose names that I knew mm-hmm. and followed on Twitter, but to actually meet them in person, of course, it's an entirely different relationship. So it was just a real life-changing moment for me in many ways. And I'd just been to the Toronto International Film Festival before it as part of, that was partially supported by the Share Her Journey project, which was to amplify women in industry at TIFF. So I sort of had gone to, I'd never been to Toronto before. So I I went to TIFF in a film critic capacity. It's part of this amazing program, this Share Her Journey program, and then went to Austin for the first time. And it was like just completely, yeah, it was like being struck by lightning, but in a really nice way. (laughs) (laughs) Which could have literally happened there because the weather was kind of all (laughs) over the place. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that TIFF was just before that because um, I was experiencing the joys of getting the uh, constant emails from PR folks once I got officially in, you know, to being to doing press for the festival. So it was exciting. So a lot of them were just post post TIFF updates and things like that. So it was really exciting. I felt like I was kind of like in the mix of something that I hadn't really experienced before. Uh, it was really fun. <laughs> it is really exciting. Uh, in 2019, there was a film that played at TIFF called St. Maud, which I believe A24 have picked up, directed by a woman called Rose Glass. It's a, just an extraordinary horror film. And I saw that in Toronto and then it, it played at Fantastic Fest. And it was such a such a joy first seeing it in Toronto, but then watching people respond to it 
in Austin. This really, you know, it, it was magical. It was really, really magical because I, I mean, it's a, it's just an indescribably good film. And seeing that joy travel from one city to another city through this festival network, it felt like it was like a little whispered secret. So have you seen St. Maud? You know, lovely, just lovely. <laughs> I feel like the folks that were at this festival and people that I interact with about genre and horror films are just so joyous and so passionate about sharing what they love about something. And and it was really uh, there. At when And when I saw your presentation, I just loved how playful and open and inviting it was. I felt like like we were in a theater, but it could have just been a circle of 15 of us around a, a big television or something. And I was just really curious, like, how do you go about planning the execution and like the vibe, the feel of putting out a presentation, speaking on a subject? Because it was so entertaining and educational. Yeah, that's a really good question. I um, I think that was called Ghouls to the Front. That was part of the Miskatonic Mm-hmm. Institute of Horror Studies series of lectures. They had a great one last year by my friend Abraham on Mexican horror too, which was, I just loved it. I almost cried. I loved it so much. Mm. But I come from, I have this sort of strange career trajectory in that I began as a music journalist and writing zines. Zine writing is where I really started writing. Awesome. Um, and, you know, music journalist for street press. And I, it's sort of ironic, I think, looking at, you know, some of the things going on in horror at the moment, but I left music journalism because the, it was just too much of a boys club, the gender politics, I just hit a wall and it's like, I can't do this anymore. So I went back to university and studied film and I did my uh, honors and my master's um, and eventually my PhD. But I sort of, I decided it's like, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be an academic now. I'm going to be a film academic now. And I ended up teaching for many, many years. I was a lecturer. Uh, lecturer at a university. I'm a research academic now. I don't teach anymore. But I did many, many years in the trenches of undergraduate lectures in film study. Uh, and I think that's really where I, it's where I learned how to use Photoshop. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but also more in terms of more of a process, it's where I learned the best way to look relaxed and to guarantee that you're going to be fine and chilled out when you do something like that to a big, you know, there was a lot of people there. It was actually quite terrifying, but I was fine with it because I so overworked it beforehand, (laughs) you know, like I just, it was so much labor. So you sort of invest a huge amount of of actual hours into the work to the point where it almost becomes second nature to you and you can pull back so that you're not reading from a script. You're not trying to, you're scrambling to remember dates. So just, just being confident that you know your stuff so that you can riff on it and kind of relax into it and enjoy it. You know, it's a dialogue. I think all, and I, I use this word a lot uh, when I talk about film criticism or programming. It's all, it's all a different, or I do, I do uh, a lot of DVD and Blu-ray commentaries, things like that. It's all about having a dialogue and it might not be a literal physical dialogue, but it's about just shooting ideas out there and having people respond to those ideas. And they may not agree and that's absolutely fine, but it's when it works best, I think it works as a kind of dialogue. And when it's a live event like that, when you're speaking to a room of hundreds of people, there's like a palpable energy there and you you don't want to be caught up in a piece of paper reading off it and trying to remember, you know, I have to pronounce somebody's surname right. You want to be bouncing off that energy and seeing what people respond to. Maybe I can cut this bit out because I don't think people will respond to that. So it's a, almost like an energy dialogue. You know, it's not a, it's not a verbal dialogue, but it's a it's a vibe. And and I think for those kind of public speaking things, you nearly, we really need to be able to read that, read the room as they say. Yeah. You know, while you were describing that, I was thinking, because, so I come from actually a music and zine background as hey. well. <laughs> so I've spent many years performing on stage. I'm not doing any of that right now. I'm, I'm loving podcasting and coaching and have even been um, looking at podcast production as like a potential new phase of this career, like for other people potentially. And it, it's just been so satisfying. But for singing and performing on stage, it's, you know, it's a very similar process. Memorize the words, memorize the lyrics. And that was actually always kind of a struggle for me. I, I could sing and feel the emotions, but it could be challenging for me to really memorize the lyrics. But if I really knuckled down and did that, you know, my performances were always so much better because yeah, then you can relax and improvise and connect with the audience. And it is more of a, a dialogue. It's like an emotional 
relationship and you can, you know, easily look out onto the audience and feel comfortable connecting because you're not thinking about what word is going to come up next. And and so, yeah, that really um, connects with me. That makes absolute total sense. And yeah, I, I used to, <laughs> I used to have my own zine with one of my, uh, with my best girlfriend and we wrote about music and art, but it was all in a, a parody format. So it was called Teen Meat, as in like <laughs> like a play on Teen Beat or Tiger Beat or those kind of, but we were talking, you know, with like alternative rock bands and stuff like that in the, the, <laughs> in the 90s in uh, Sacramento, California. And so we really had a a blast. You know, we were photographing, interviewing, editing, writing, getting advertising, you know, doing uh, clip art layout of advertising and, and sort of aping that teen, teen beat, tiger beat style, <laughs> you know, and, and it really was born out of our desire to ask really stupid questions <laughs> of our favorite, you know, mostly dude bands, you know, mostly guys. And some women too, but it was it was really a fun exercise in writing in that in that parody voice, and and then just doing the whole thing, you know, from top to bottom, like this little bootstrapped, <laughs> wacky little zine that it actually did get distributed by Tower Records all over the world, and and it was like reviewed very favorably in some you know rock mags and stuff like that, like Maximum Rock and Roll and Flipside and. Fact sheet five, I think. So it was it was a really fun creative exercise that that I love. <laughs> I, I, love I love doing this, that. This, I love this. This ties back into what what we were talking about previously as well. The thing that I really, I mean, it's generational. I think just especially for those of us that were into kind of you know weird shit when we were <laughs> when we mm-hmm. were younger. You know, the actual construction of a zine. You know, that physical cut and paste stuff. You know, those early early zines. You know, by the time we would doing ours it was you know it was more computer stuff mm-hmm. but the, you know when I think of zines I think of that cut and paste literally cutting and pasting absolutely it ties into this idea back to what we were talking about is this idea of uh, this idea of labor so that when you perform on stage whether you're whether you're singing or whether you're speaking there's an enormous amount of labor that goes into it beforehand for both men and women and that labor is effectively invisible because you 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 know your goal you put in all the work so that you can make it look like there is no labor at all that's the the paradox i guess is that you have to mm-hmm. work very very hard to make something look natural and easy in that context and i think one of the one of the things that's so subversive about zen culture is that the the labor is part of the materiality of the object you can actually see the work that's physically gone into it and i love that but this idea of invisible labor was it, it, i mean the introduction to 1000 women in horror it's it's just it's not sexy, but I stand by it. It's about women and labor. And if I, you know, if I released a book called Women, Labor and Horror, I don't think people would be <laughs> that interested. <laughs> but that's really what the book is about. It's about, you know, the, these women who, um, who we, don't, we don't think of it as labor. You know, the, the, the idea, it's, it's so gendered. You know, you ask so many mums about in, the idea of invisible labor. And maybe not all mums, but, you know, it's... it's why why are my dirty clothes? Why did I chuck them on the floor and then they're gone and now they're clean, they're folded up in my drawer? This idea of invisible labor is very, very gendered, mm-hmm. hugely gendered, and it becomes more, you know, there's obviously a spectrum of that when you introduce intersectional factors like class and race and sexuality. All of these different things amplify invisibility, which I think is a paradox, but you know what I mean. It makes people even more invisible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, black women in film of, you know, they're, they're more invisible than, than white women in film. And, and it's, it's this question, I think, of acknowledging that labor, not just in, in horror cinema, which is obviously where I put my focus, but, you know, across the board, I think, this idea of making labor visible. I just, I often think of um, those, those amazing, those extraordinary women in the Hammer horror films who just sort of ethereally manifest in these sort of chiffon see-through nightgowns and they're they're just incredible and they're passionate and they're powerful and they're just it's just so intoxicating but we don't really think of that as labor we don't think of those women getting up and going to work and doing their job we just think of them as sort of being you know appearing almost like a fog and it's like no they're doing a job this is this is work that they got paid for and they worked really hard and you know they had to set their alarm clock and get up and go to work and we need to acknowledge this as labor both behind and in behind the camera and in front of the camera 
So that's really at the heart of, of the book is, is about making this invisible labor visible, not just the women themselves, but the actual work. I love that. Listeners who've listened to a few episodes will hear a theme of talking about self-compassion and avoiding burnout. And I coach men, but I also coach mostly women, I would say, that are creative professionals. And the amount of hard work that everybody puts into their work, whether they're working for themselves or with a, you know, a team or um, for a creative corporation, whatever it is that you're doing, it's so easy for people to also underplay themselves how much work that they're doing. And so it's, it's very important to, uh, when we talk about mentors and peers, that we also help each other maybe recognize like how much, you know, how we're burning the candle at both ends. Or, you know, when you say like, oh, I'm going to take some time off from working today. And then, you know, I, I recognize that I'm being more transparent with people and saying like, oh, I just took a couple hours off of quote unquote working, but it was to do dishes, drop off the laundry. We don't have laundry here, so I have to drop it off, you know, to go walk the dog, to, you know, make a note of the things we need to do tomorrow. It's not a break. I mean, it's just, I'm just switching over at a different work. And I really use mindfulness and really checking in with myself a lot. So just sitting and meditating for a couple minutes, even if it's just to say, where am I at right now? You know, and recognizing like, oh my gosh, I, I've been working for hours and hours and I'm just fatigued. And if I'm going to, um, like for instance, today with our scheduled time, I wanted to really make sure I was, you know, sharp and on the ball and it's just coming up on 5 PM on Friday and I'm sipping a little coffee and I took a little nap earlier and, and I, I made sure I wasn't doing too many things today so that I wasn't showing up to talk with you, you know, foggy brained because, <laughs> because that's how we put forth. And, you know, what we, yeah, each episode I feel like is, you know, a little baby, you know, of the episode of the podcast is like, I'm birthing these little things that I, you know, I want to inspire others and share creatives perspective and, and share their interesting projects. And, and also to, you know, hopefully give everybody at least one or two little nuggets that they can take away and maybe remind themselves of how hardworking they are and to give themselves a break and, and be kind to themselves on the days where they're not producing at a high volume. And that though that's also part of the, the process. And especially right now where we're, um, you know, we talked a little bit before we started recording about that we're, we're all in lockdown still here. And the, the news cycle and all the revolutionary things that are happening in, in the world and the coronavirus and everything else, there's so much going on that it, it is imperative that we give ourselves extra time to rest and recover and that that is also part of the progress and the process of like putting out a book or, or a podcast or a film or anything that we're doing is that we need to like do rest and recovery. When I'm, uh, and now you can tell I'm really caffeinated because I'm really kind of <laughs> blabbity blabbing <laughs> with uh, that information that I'm sharing. Is there anything that comes up as far as, yeah, the any of the subjects of your book or or you putting out the book itself? I'm terrible at it. I'm just terrible at taking time out. It's something I've worked from home for a long, long time, about 15 years maybe. and it's it's very interesting to me in 2020 because so many people have switched to working from home and the things that I've sort of had to work through over a very, very long time, a lot of people are suddenly having to learn very, very quickly. It's been interesting for me. It's like, oh, it's not just me. Like it's actually a really hard thing to do. I work less in an office. I work less when I go to a job. Mm -hmm. And I, I think people think, oh, you know, you work from home and you just lie around on the couch all day and eat bonbons and watch soap operas and it's like, oh God, it's the opposite because there's this guilt thing. There's this sort of, no, no, I must focus and I must, I must produce because I'm, you know, that because there is no schedule except for my own schedule. Uh, so you become quite regimented. I give myself weekends. That's my big thing is that I just, I don't turn my computer on on weekends. That was huge. And I think about five years ago, I just accepted that I don't, there's no part of my day-to-day -day practice that really allows for downtime. I work office hours, so I work about nine to four, but I don't, I don't take 
you know, weekends I do, but I, I don't really, yeah, I'm, I work too hard during that time. I work much, as I said, I work much, much harder than I would if I had an office job. So I realized that I just need holidays. Every three or four months, I just have to have a week away. And that's really great. That That's actually worked very, very well for me uh, because it gives me a goal that's not a work deadline. You know, and it's really nice to have that to travel towards, to sort of punctuate the future. I'm working towards this moment that is defined by the fact that it has nothing to do with work. And it cannot, you know, it can just be driving, you know, an hour and a half out of town to stay in a little cabin near the beach or something. It doesn't have to be an exotic, big, expensive holiday, but just a week of somewhere else and, and doing something else. So that's been a real lifeline for me. Um, and of course, 2020 being what it is, I uh, like a lot of people, you know, that not having a holiday is the least of our problems, but it's one of the things that I'm yearning for, just a, a little break. Absolutely. I've been playing around with my calendar because I'm not traveling anywhere. I, I drove to Sacramento a couple of weeks ago. That's just about an hour away to visit family. And we sat far from each other on a front porch and, you know, laughed and caught up and everything. You know, I know some people are going away to maybe an Airbnb or like you said, to a cabin or something. And But I am, what I am trying to do and what I'm playing around with on my calendar and experimenting with is saying things like using that word staycation and saying like this Friday, Saturday and Sunday, I am not doing any work and it's, it is a vacation and uh, maybe driving to a different area locally here and just seeing different trees, different beach, different water, different birds, you know, just changing up the scenery a bit because it is challenging. And also I have some writing goals. So I wrote on my calendar instead of just saying like, work on website, I wrote writer's retreat yep. and really, you know, changed it and, you know, lit one of my favorite <laughs> aromatherapy candles and, and just looking on the calendar and seeing writer's retreat, like changed the way I thought about what I was doing. And then it was sort of a a gift of time. And certainly those vacations like you shared, those are so, uh, I like, yeah, it's kind of like a reward at the end of a project that's, that's a decent amount of time of stepping away from your, what you've been working so hard on. So that's a great example. Absolutely. And I, I find too, just screen time, because even if it's not on a computer, my work, if I'm not on a computer, then I'm watching a film, whether it's to right. review or as a programmer. So screen time is a really, it sounds like I'm talking about a five-year-old, but I have to police my screen time because mentally I can just feel the light doing neurological damage. It's like, oh my gosh. Know, like I'm, I'm on my computer all day and then I, mm -hmm. then I watch movies all night, which is an awesome way to live. Don't get me wrong. I, I love it. I love it. But it's something that I actually have to actively police. It's like, I need to do things. I need to see green. I need to look at a tree. I need to breathe air that's not in the house, you know, which is, which is complicated obviously by lockdown, but yeah, just policing those almost more internal things within my own work practice is really, really important. I've been working the last couple of years. I've, I've been working on paper a lot more, mm -hmm. which is hilarious. I've still got the notebooks when I first started doing it. And my writing was like, it was so, it was like, what's happened to my handwriting? And it's, it's like, well, we don't, we don't write and we don't physically write that much anymore. And I was absolutely appalled by the quality of my handwriting. It's still not great, but I do find you work completely different with a pen and paper. I still edit. I was an editor for quite a few years for a film journal called Senses of Cinema. And it's very, very old school, but one of the best writing tips I got ever was to edit on paper. It's a completely different process when you edit on paper to editing on screen. So I always edit on paper. And there's something about the, again, the materiality of it, you know, holding the pen and making the physical mark, you know, with ink and the, the tactility of paper, just in a sensorial kind of haptic way. I think it's a really different experience than, you know, screen, mouse, keyboard, remote control screen. You know what I mean? That that sort of oh, yeah. interface to have a, a kind of non-electronic non way of working is really lovely. So all of my notes now I, I take on paper. And it feels much healthier in terms of, you know, the different parts of my brain that are being activated in that process. Yeah. And I, I like to do that also because I like to escape to my, my mobile office, which is my little smart car. And I'll get in that and go park in a attractive, you know, scenic area and then hand write notes or, you know, do whatever I'm doing. And, and it's, yeah, it really does 
change the way you process that information. So yeah, I love that. Thanks for sharing that. I love the idea of a mobile office. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, I think we should probably wrap up here, but I want to make sure, you know, that again, we talk, maybe just touch again a little bit about this book. I'll definitely share links, you know, for people so that they can check it out. And maybe we could talk a little bit about the structure of it because it's sort of, I mean, I'll let you tell me, but to me, when I'm looking at the preview copy that I got here, it's, it's, uh, you know, there's photos, of course, but it's really, it's encyclopedic, but also with interviews. How do you describe what the book is? Yeah, I mean, the, the Thousand Women are really short biographies. They're sort of one paragraph long biographies sprinkled with longer, much longer interviews. And there's a very long, I, I think the key, the, the, the book is bookended by two things that were probably the most labor intensive in a way, not time intensive, but intellectually. The introduction is is where I really frame my mission of intent. And that that was quite a big job. It's not where the word count of the book is, but just framing what I was doing and why I was doing it was really essential to get that right. Uh, and also to acknowledge the scale of the project because it's only a thousand women. So the the process of selection is probably less the way to describe it as more of a process of omission. Who do, who do I, you know, if you're only doing a thousand women, who do you leave out is a bigger question as much as who do you put in? So that was really, I mean, that was really the big challenge with this book is who do I, you know, what is the picture that I want to present when all of these names are put together? So I've had to accept with some difficulty that there are just, no matter how much research I do, there's going to be some obvious names that I've missed. And that's, I just have to sit with that and accept it and People are going to say, and I say this in the introduction. It's like you know, you know, I can't, I can't believe you didn't include this person. In a way, that's good. In a way, the the ultimate compliment for the book would be somebody saying, I can't believe you only put a thousand women in horror because there's so many others, and that's that's the point. So I really wanted to do uh, an overview that was both global and historical. I wanted to go right back to early cinema, but I also wanted to focus on different. Uh, different cultures, different countries, and really amplify this idea of of women doing lots of different jobs, different kinds of types of labor in the genre across a very long time and across a very broad space. So that really dominated my text selection. Um, I was very determined to not just have quote unquote famous people. Uh, I really wanted to include emerging filmmakers and emerging emerging talent. You know, I wanted there to be as many names as people don't know as that they did or even more um, because to me the thrill is about discovery. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a big project and it was quite challenging on an emotional level, just accepting the limitations of the project itself. You know, I'm not, I, I think it initially started off as a hundred women in horror and I think it took mm. about five minutes to realize that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but even a thousand was ridiculous. Um, and there are, there are very, you know, there are people in there that I would say are, are obscure and I'm glad that they're in there. I'm really glad that they're in there because I think that their their labor should be recognized. And it's more about what's the bigger picture that all of these thousand profiles paint together collectively rather than looking at them as just like one-off individuals. It's like what is the bigger picture that they paint? And, of course, at the end of the book is a selected filmography of uh, horror films directed by women um, or co-directed by women. And I'm very loose in my definition of horror. And mm-hmm. I stand, I'm fine with that. I stand by that. I don't have a very rigid definition of the genre. And that's about 700. There's about 700 films there. So it's really just to give people an idea of scale and depth and diversity. And visibility is the really key word here. It's about this idea of invisible labor being made visible more as a collective than, you know, it's, it's greater than the sum of its parts. Oh, that's so beautiful. This seems like the modern companion or extension, or I don't know how to put it exactly, but like, I think about when when I was younger, my dad had the cult movies book, the cult movies one and two. When I was younger, those were from uh, Danny Perry, how those like really informed me as a young person. And my dad was also the person who took my brother and I as little kids to go see Eraserhead, you know, <laughs> and it's like <laughs> that I could start there as a young person and start to educate myself and sort of go through and learn about some films, but to to be able to move forward and have this 
this huge resource that tells a, a vaster story and something that is important to me, which is learning more about creative women and women who are creating film. And also to really balance the scales, like there's a podcast I used to listen to. It was called Pure Cinema, and it's run by a couple of men, and, and they're they're well-versed in horror films. And I, I had to stop listening because I felt like they didn't have the context. It seemed like everything that I was listening to with them was like, you know, I know you mentioned that, you know, rape revenge films before. I felt like I was listening to a couple of dudes talk about rape revenge films and just going like, I don't, I don't want to listen to these dudes talk yep. about this. And this yep. sounds like something that I'm really looking forward to reading and sharing and consuming and educating myself and just learning about these stories. And I, I love autobiographies. And those are actually mostly what I read. So th th these short biographies and the recommendations and everything is just, it's just, something that I love. And the way that my brain works, it's a way that I can consume information and it kind of sticks with me as I can go back and reread little, you know, little snippets and little short bios. So absolutely. It's very much designed with that in mind. You're sort of like, you know, you'll be watching something and you'll think there'll be a, you know, a, a woman performer and you might look her up and then you might just out of the corner of your eye see Oh, Morocco or Iceland, you know, like it, or early cinema, you know, these little, it's like, oh, you know, that, that almost like just by proximity, your your sense of scale might just be expanded a little bit more. I don't mean you personally, but do, do you know what I mean? Like this idea of being able to dip into the book and mm -hmm. um, and almost by accident, just the, the physical proximity, you know, it's all listed alphabetically, uh, which in a way serves to almost democratise everybody. So, you know, you have mm -hmm. a, neg a negative cutter from Australia who's next to a, you know, like a, 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 an A-list Hollywood star. And I, I like the idea that they're both given the same amount of words and that they're in, they're kind of on equal footing, mm -hmm. um, not because of the value of their donations to culture or anything like that, but just in terms of their labor. You know, these are women that got up and went to work. And, and I kind of like that idea of democratizing, that idea of women's labor. Like these are all women mm -hmm. with jobs and some of them might be, you know, Joan Collins is in there. She's done some fabulous horror films. Uh, but, you know, like this dazzling superstar like Joan Collins. Right. Being in there next to somebody who might be, yeah, an editor or a cinematographer from Paraguay is really, I mean, that to me that's really, there's something about that that really appeals to the things that I'm interested in. And it's, you know, it's my own bias and I admit that, but it's also my own book and I'm allowed. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm one of those people who I also love listening to commentaries and and um, seeing behind the scenes about how films get made. And, and I'm always just as fascinated seeing, you know, learning about the fully artist or the um, editor just as much as the person who's, um, you know, the auteur or the, you know, more famous or well-known person. So I can totally relate to that. Absolutely. And I think there's this idea of this, you know, we go back to art history, this idea of the single male genius when it comes to visual culture and the arts, you know, the idea that there's this, you know, in, in literature, you know, this idea of the single visionary who's almost always a man is something that's very, um, very active in critical film discourse history. And I think just working away from that and looking at it, you know, there are other people who work on films aside from actors and directors. Um, Hallelujah, sister. I get so bored hearing about the same <laughs> 10 films and the same five or <laughs> directors. It's oh, look, so even, boring. <laughs> even with women, even with women's horror filmmaking, it, it drove me absolutely batty. Like there's, you know, these infinite lists now of like the top 10 films by women that you should see. And it's always this sort of, it's not always, there are wonderful people who have done this, these kinds of lists who are fantastic people and very film literate and come from a good place. But it's, you know, that the tone is more often than not. Can you believe women make horror films? Here are right. 10 that you should check out. And it's the same list over and over and over again. And they're great films and it's great that there is this issue. You know, even the visibility is great. It's like, okay, let's even just acknowledge that women make horror films. You know, this really kicked off after, you know, 2014, 2015, things like Babadook, Jennifer Kent's film and uh, Julia de Kurnow's Raw, Karen Kusama's 
The Invitation, Julia de Kernel's mm-hmm. uh, Roar I just mentioned, um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. There, there was, seemed to be a real spike of interest around that point that has sort of maintained to some degree. But it's like, oh, did you know? Did you know that American Psycho was directed by a woman? Did you know that Pet Cemetery was directed by a woman? Did you know that Near Dark was directed by a woman? And it's like there are so many other films. Like let's let's like it's great, but let's use that as a starting point. Let's not just keep right. churning out that same list of ten films. Watch all those ten films. They're amazing films. I do not I do not diminish the significance of those ten films, but there are hundreds of films hundreds of films and hundreds of filmmakers and um we need to keep the we need to keep expanding the conversation rather than having it stagnate i think absolutely well thank you so much for expanding the conversation today on the podcast and for highlighting just a thousand women (laughs) in this one book of many books that you've written yeah any parting thoughts before we uh before i let you go Thank you so much for chatting to me, Heidi. It's been really delightful. It's been an absolute pleasure, Alex. And I look forward to seeing you in person at Fantastic Fest. (laughs) (laughs) One of these days. Me too. Let's have an ice cream. Sounds wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. That was fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks again, Alex. It was just wonderful. Lovely. Thanks, Heidi. All right, everybody, that wraps up another episode of Vibrant Visionaries. I loved having Alex on, could talk with her for hours, and definitely look forward to seeing her again in person, and so glad we got this chance to talk. More episodes are around the corner. We're continuing the Parks and Recreation rewatch, and then also I've got the second half of that conversation with my buddy Skinner, So if you're a new listener, please subscribe. You can find me at vibrantvisionaries.com. You'll also find a link there to Patreon if you'd like to become a patron. You get stickers in the mail, thank you cards from me, shout outs on the podcast, and you're also financially supporting the podcast, which I really appreciate. The Vibrant Visionaries podcast is produced, hosted, booked, and pretty much everything by me, Heidi Bennett. I do get excellent editing assistance from David Smith. You can find David at andwhatnotfilms.com. You can find out more about me as a coach, a creative consultant, and podcast producer at heidibennett.com. So thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Ciao!